This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Survivors of human trafficking are sometimes married to their captors. So as they're rebuilding their lives, they have to file for divorce. And that's just one of the legal hurdles trafficking victims face. The hope is technology can help. The Denver nonprofit Alight, that's the Alliance to Lead Impact in Global Human Trafficking, has designed an app to match survivors with lawyers who can help them. Mariana Kosharovsky is Alight's executive director. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I want to get to this app in just a moment. But first, tell us about the victims of human trafficking. Who is most often targeted? With human trafficking, it's important to remember that it comes in so many different forms. And so I know a lot of times people immediately think of sex trafficking or things that we see most often in the news, these more extreme stories of brothels and sweatshops or people locked in basements. And that's a part of the story. But human trafficking is essentially about someone exploiting others who are in vulnerable positions through force, fraud or coercion. So what what else might that look like? It comes in many forms and across so many industries that it's almost difficult to count. But you have people in domestic servitude, so nannies or house cleaners, people working in Colorado. Um, there have been issues around farm workers, migrant laborers coming in also to work on ranches um, and factories, uh, and of course, sexual exploitation situations. So across the board. So you hope that technology can help victims. Uh, But I I wonder first, before talking about the app, if there's a way that the Internet uh, has made trafficking worse, that it sort of cuts both ways. Uh, It's interesting. Even back in 2008, when I started working on these issues, I saw that traffickers were pretty savvy at technology. A lot of times they're running businesses. You could think about it that way. They're running businesses to exploit people as efficiently as possible. So they've become quite adept at using technology, whether it's using Internet to advertise, recruit, using telecommunications to monitor, things like that. So um, a lot of times, you know, with Backpage being in the news, we've seen that um, different sites where people are actually posting um, sex services on websites and recruiting vulnerable people through chat rooms and befriending them. So lots of different forms that it's been used. Your organization, Alight, focuses on helping survivors once they've escaped their situation. And I wonder why that is such a critical time, those days, weeks, months after being liberated. That's really a critical period for survivors, because if you think about it, they got into human human trafficking situations in the first place because of their vulnerability. And a lot of times traffickers are using various means to keep them vulnerable, to create problems in their lives. And so the survivors that are trying to escape their situations or are transitioning out need to be empowered and need to have access to professional services, especially lawyers, so that they have the tools to rebuild their lives, to be in stronger positions to resolve some of the problems that the traffickers have actually created for them. And not to get sucked back into that life. I I gather that's a risk. Exactly. Yeah. There's a cycle of vulnerability and violence that's taking place. And so how do you break the cycle? 
You talked about legal services as one of the needs that survivors of human trafficking need when they emerge. And indeed, you've put together this app um, that I understand is not necessarily for the victims themselves, but for those who help the victims. And one is to put them in touch with legal help. Exactly. Yes. We're working with um, our tech partner, Caravan Studios, using an app, testing it, studying it, refining it. That's basically like an Uber for finding pro bono lawyers. So it takes on the one side, there's sort of two sides of the equation, the need and the expertise. We have survivors with legal problems, concrete issues facing them, just like you mentioned man, if I'm married to my trafficker, how, how do I divorce? Because that's a critical step to moving out of that situation. What do I do if we have kids about custody? Yes. How mm-hmm. do I take care of all of these different things? You know, traffickers think up so many different ways to keep people vulnerable. They may take their identities. They may ruin their credit. All these things run across different areas of law that need to be sort of plugged in for the survivor. So the survivor would come in and work with a service provider who's a partner in our program. And a service provider would be a a local organization or agency like Rocky Mountain Victims Law Center or Urban Peak, which works with homeless and runaway youth. And so the survivor would come in with their problems and the service provider would post their need as a request for help through the app. So that's one side of it. And then on the other side of the equation, you have a pool of lawyers from different areas of law that we've recruited. And in the middle is this app, which is connecting these two sides that before have not been connected. And you say that this is pro bono work. In other words, the lawyers do this for free for these victims. Exactly. And lawyers really want to do this. There's a rich tradition of pro bono in Colorado, in the U.S., and many places where I think there's a lot of people that feel very strongly about this issue And lawyers especially want to know, how can I use my expertise to actually help make meaningful change in someone's life, especially in human trafficking, which is such a complex area? How can I contribute to people's lives in this thorny, dark, you know, hard, hard problem of an area? Yeah, it never occurred to me how many of the needs are legal when they uh, escape their captors. So the app is up and running, but it's early days. What does it need to take off, do you think? Oh, um, we need more, (laughs) more of everything. So we are really excited to have launched a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We're already getting hits through the app and matches over the weekend. Um, But we're really intent on growing this work. And so we want to connect to more service providers who are seeing human trafficking survivors with legal needs so that we can help serve them. And then on the other side, we want to keep building out our pool of legal expertise. So lawyers from all these different areas of law that come into play that you would not necessarily think of, like family law you talked about, but also criminal law, and then different areas of civil law, you know, contract attorneys, commercial attorneys, bankruptcy attorneys, tax law attorneys. You you wouldn't think it has anything to do with human trafficking. But these survivors are facing, you know, nuts and bolts issues of my trafficker ruined my credit. What do I do next? Let's bring in a lawyer. There were 120 trafficking cases reported in Colorado last year. That's almost double the number two years earlier, according to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. 
This year, the state legislature will consider a bill to allow wiretaps to uncover traffickers. How would you describe the state of human trafficking in Colorado specifically? You know, uh, with human trafficking, uh, it's... It's one of those things, it's it's a crime, right? It thrives because it stays in the dark and beneath the surface. And so the more we look, the more we see what's actually there. And I think with all these great measures and with the laws strengthening Colorado, starting in 2014, we had stronger laws here. After that, we we're seeing more convictions and um, a series of other measures and communities being emboldened. We're seeing the more we look, the more we see what a big problem it is. And so the problem is actually much bigger than than those numbers. And as you said, that it's not always the picture we have of human trafficking. It takes on different dimensions. You've worked with, with survivors for a long time now. Is there an example of someone who is able to regain their life? Uh, there are – there are um, – it is, but I have to warn you, it's a process, which is why we really need to bring in um, a network of expertise into this. With people's lives being broken down, there are so many pieces and legal pieces that need to be reconstructed. Um, I was working with someone early on in my career that particularly struck me and, and really influenced how I started developing our approach here at Alight. I started out working with someone that was about my age and from my country of origin, which is Ukraine. Um, and she was actually trafficked in as a mail-order bride through an agency, marrying someone here, believing that and being told that she would get educational opportunities and a better life. Once coming here, it's it's a different story, you know, far from home, not speaking the language, even more vulnerable than before. Because a lot of times these decisions are just, you know, people making the best decisions they can under their circumstances. So she thought she was taking a risk, but signing up for something better. Once here, um, she, you know, the relationship was not equal. She was abused by her husband. She was even more vulnerable. She ran away. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't get easier even once she ran away from the situation because she was on the street without resources. And so, so many parts of her life were broken down. I was working with her at that time, realizing, wow, I, we need an army of lawyers to help her because... Imagine she, there were immigration issues involved as well. And how is she today? She is, you know, it's it takes a number of years. She's She's better. It's still... You know, it's one of it, human trafficking takes a long time. It's it's not one of those easy, clean pictures. And so, even many years later, she's rebuilding her life. But she has status. She received access to benefits, and she's on she's on that long road to rebuilding her life. You heard Mariana Kosharovsky there, executive director of Alight, the Denver nonprofit, has developed an app to help survivors of human trafficking. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tattoo Emergency 911 is the name of Jesus Buhanda's business. He specializes in getting rid of tattoos. And it may surprise you to learn that some of the work he does is paid for by the state of Colorado. His shop is on wheels, a retrofitted ambulance with flames painted across the front. 
So it was easy to find Buhanda, parked at a church in Greeley. Inside Buhanda's mobile shop, red and white decor, the lasers in a corner near the back, next to what looks like a barber chair. That's where his clients sit. Let me see, I'm going to turn on the air. Buhanda starts with a hose that blows cold air. He'll aim it at the tattoo to reduce pain from the laser. Buhanda's wife, Gaydine, who runs the business with him, fires the laser up. Jesus Buhanda says it's a painful procedure. Have you ever splashed bacon grease on yourself? Add electricity to that. So it's an uncomfortable feeling, but it goes really fast. Buhanda often works with at-risk youth and former inmates to remove gang tattoos. The removal for young people is what Colorado helps pay for. They call them job stoppers, and as soon as an employer sees something on your hand, on your neck, on your face, they just get leery right away. And, you know, they have so many applications to choose from that that's an easy way to get looked over. And this was actually the inspiration for his business a few years ago. We had a nephew who was in prison, and uh, when he went in, he had his ex-girlfriend's name on his neck. And, and West Side, which he wasn't a gang member, but a lot of people love putting that West Side, North Side, wherever they're from. His nephew had tried to cover them up with an image of a dog bone. And even though they weren't gang tattoos, Buhanda says they seemed to affect his nephew's job search. So he got them removed and now has a good job. Buhanda thought if this worked for his nephew, it could make a big difference for people getting out of juvenile detention or prison. And Jesus, welcome to the program. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Will you share some examples of gang tattoos that you've removed? Um... I've done a lot of white supremacy, um, a lot of West Side, North Side, just a, just tons of them. Anything you could think of that any type of gang from the spider webs on the elbow, a lot of teardrops. Um, there's a few new ones that I didn't know about, and there's just a ton of them. There's one that looks like a little baby's hand, and you would assume that it's their baby's hand. And what it is is it's... They had a hand in somebody's murder or taking care of some kind of business, and that kind of leaves people open for targets from other gangs. And uh, teardrops I have <clears throat> traditionally thought of as pe- a, a way to tally people killed. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Yes, and there's a few different, but that's one of the ones everybody associates a teardrop with. Mm-hmm. Where are some of these tattoos? Teardrops, obviously, on the face, <laughs> on but the face. Uh, where, where are you doing the removal work? Um, a lot of the face, a lot of the neck. Um, I've seen a lot of white supremacists that they look like suspenders and they say white pride and, um, just everywhere, everywhere. They, they want it. They want them seen, you know, they, on the knuckles, on the hands, on the wrists. So they are a sign of pride for mm-hmm. these folks as opposed to getting them under pressure or something as a, as a rite of passage. You know, I'm not sure about that, but okay. I, I would assume so. So as we've said, you've been contracted by the state of Colorado to Mm -hmm. provide tattoo removal Mm -hmm. for those who are transitioning to or who are on parole under the Division of Youth Corrections, young people. Yes. So how how did that relationship with the state and your company come to be? Well, I've always known that they've had these services. They generally will take um, one or two client managers and one um, client inmate out to – have these services done what i offered the state is to be able to come in and do it a lot sooner being able to say you know six months to a year it usually takes to remove a tattoo so i would like to go in there a little earlier and help them be completely cleaned up by the time they get out 
with the idea that you are mobile and can come to them as yes. opposed to bringing these young people out of whatever facility they're in yes. and then transporting them to another removal service. And there is another removal service that contracts with the state in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this work that um, touches you in some way? It does. It does. When I first started out um, – I didn't know which direction my business was going to go go in. Um, for the last 20 years, I've worked in at-risk schools, and I've always liked working with at-risk youth. Yeah, I want to say that this is not your full-time job. No. You have a job as a teacher in a school. Yes. Yes, I do. I teach automotive technology at Jefferson County Schools, and I've been there for about 15 years and working with uh, at-risk youth for about 20 years in Denver and Jefferson County. So it's it's no coincidence that, that your business then went in this direction. No, no, it mm-hmm. isn't. The state has spent more than $18,000 on tattoo removal services for at-risk youth over the last few years. And this accounts, uh, again, from two different vendors. $18,000, not a huge amount of money in in the context of the state budget. But it does warrant the question why this is worth taxpayer money. Well, if you think about it, it's probably about 6700 to educate a student at the high school level but it's about 10 times that to house them and it goes up with special if they have special needs if they can give them all the support they have need you know whether it's drug and alcohol education vocational social you know i feel like the tattoo removal is one of the last pieces of that puzzle to help them be successful because it's a lot cheaper to have them out and working than it is to be housing them and you're saying that the tattoos themselves are often a block, an obstacle to employment? Yes, it is. I, I believe it is. And is that – I guess that, – is that more general, just like people's um, prejudice towards tattoos, whether they're gang tattoos or not? I think so. I mm-hmm. think so. It, it's one of those things where when you walk in and you shake a person's hand, you know, your potential employer, and they see something on your face or on your hands – automatically, you know, it's one of those things where I've had my students come back and, you know, they said, I've put in a ton of applications. They say they'll call me and they never call me. Yeah. So that's a pattern you've heard. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, you know, I in the last three or four years, even before I thought about getting into the tattoo removal, with the young people, it's they seem a little more relaxed about what they're doing with themselves and they're thinking they'll be okay. And they don't realize the type of struggle once they get out. And even if it's only high school education, the job market's rough out there. I want to say that you've also partnered with Gang Reduction Initiatives in Denver, mm-hmm. or GRID. Yes. It's a network of government agencies, local businesses, community groups, churches as well, that work to prevent gang violence. Um, how much does it typically cost to get a tattoo removed? What, what would they be facing if they were paying this themselves? You know, it is expensive. On the average, it could be anywhere from $35 to $50 a square inch. A square inch. A square inch. So if you think of a business card, a business card is seven square inches. Oh, my. Yeah. So it do, it does get expensive. And some of these tattoos cover, I imagine, vast areas of the body. Vast areas. Uh-huh. And you're able to do it for less with the I'm state? I'm able to do it for less with the state. And I'm also also working with GRID. You know, it. the way that was explained to me is you got to take everything. You know, whether you're working in transitional housing for adults that they could only afford to spend a very little percentage of what they bring in when they're working at a halfway house and they use that for self-improvement. They can choose to close, 
you know, uh, a lot of them will choose just other things. There's a small percentage that will choose tattoo removal. And when they choose tattoo removal, um, it's it's hardly anything. But, you know, I'm willing to do it just because I'm trying to help make these changes here in Colorado. Mm. It, it sounds very painful. You talk about it, it's, the burning. Yeah, it's spicy. It, it's not a burning. We are putting about 300 degrees of heat at the tattoo without burning the skin. It's It's a very remarkable process. In the last eight years, the technology has grown by leaps and bounds. I see. It's getting better. It's getting better. Uh, it's still spicy. It feels like a intense sunburn for 24 hours, but you give the skin about a month to heal and you start the process again. And by the time you're done, if you follow everything in the process, um, you leave, you know, with your skin fresh, no scarring, no blistering. But the point is that this is not a one no. visit deal. No. That's why you wanted to get a head start for some yes. of these young people. Yes. You're looking to expand to California, I yes. understand, and to yes. do similar work there. Yes. I am curious if your nephew, who to some extent was the inspiration for this project, if he's doing well. He is doing well. Um, when he first went into prison, his stepfather had a fledgling concrete company just starting out. When he got out, he was doing contracting kind of small driveways and sidewalks. And now he's contracting um, airplane hangers and runways. So he basically works the entire winter uh, and, or in the entire summer and is able to do little side jobs to keep himself busy. But he's doing very, very well for himself. All right. Thanks for sharing your experience with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Jesus Buhanda of Denver owns the mobile tattoo removal service Tattoo Emergency 911. The state contracts with him to remove gang tattoos for some young people. Tattoo removal is one way to help people move beyond their past. Another is a new website for people who used to be in prison in Colorado. It's called Remerge.com. Its IT guy, Steve Mursuli, spent three years at a minimum security prison in Canyon City. He was convicted of a white-collar crime and released in 2015. When you come out, you really don't know what's out there to help you. You kind of think you're alone. So you're basically starting life over. Parolees are often strapped for cash. So this site helps people get a decent set of clothes for a job interview and locates food banks. It offers housing options and lists companies that hire people with felony records. Just recently, Murasuli says he got feedback on Remerge.com during his commute to work. I was on the bus and ran into a guy that I had been in prison with, and uh, he was with another guy. We got to talking as to where I worked, and I said, I'm I'm at Remerge, I'm doing the website, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the other guy got up and gave me his seat. He said, you got me a job. Mursuli says the man had been working at McDonald's making minimum wage. He went to the website and found other opportunities. He ended up working for one of the bigger companies in their warehouse, making $16 an hour plus overtime. Mursuli doesn't expect everyone to have that kind of success. He just hopes the website will make a dent in the state's recidivism rate. It's currently about half of Colorado inmates who return to prison within three years of being released. Mursuli says he hopes to transfer the information on Remerge.com to a thumb drive. That's because people in prison awaiting release often don't have access to the Internet for security reasons. Mursuli and Remerge.com's founder, Carol Peoples, say they hope to expand as well to other states. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Radio waves come from us, and you pick them up, but that's not the end of the story. Your feedback on what you hear is critical to what we do. So let's hear what you're saying now in our regular feedback segment, Loud and Clear. As congressional leaders tackle the future of health care, we told you last week that there's an experiment on Colorado's western slope to bring down the costs of Medicaid, the health insurance program for the poor. The goal, too, is to provide equal or better care. The experiment has largely been a success, saving money each year while focusing more on primary care and behavioral and mental health. Alicia Gordon of Grand Junction asked how the program called Medicaid Prime addresses addiction. We called back our guest, Patrick Gordon of Rocky Mountain Health Plants. The whole point of this exercise is to focus on the whole person. You know, day to day, the average primary care provider is not going to distinguish between substance use, depression, and other health conditions. They're going to try to do everything they can to address all of those issues as comprehensively as possible. And this payment model puts them in a better position to do that. But Richard Gingery says it's not working for everyone. Gingery is a retired physician in Ridgeway. He says in particular, the Medicaid experiment hurts those who are not enrolled in it. Gingery writes at CPRnews.org that Medicaid Prime had some unfortunate and unintended consequences. Our Medicaid patients in Uray County and other smaller counties on the West Slope who could not participate in the program suddenly found that no specialist would see them. Things got so bad for our Medicaid patients that they had to go as far away as Denver, a 300-mile drive, for specialty care. Patrick Gordon of Rocky Mountain Health Plans says he has spoken with Dr. Gingery several times. This was conceived as a pilot And in that, it was limited in space and time. And so I think it's unfortunate that counties like Uray could not be included. We certainly hope in the future, if we continue to produce results, to get the state's permission to expand. And frankly, if we could expand to more counties and expand to all populations, we wouldn't have these issues about who can enroll and and who can't at any given time. But Gordon acknowledges that expanding the program would be difficult and require an overhaul of how hospitals get compensated by state and federal governments for treating Medicaid patients. Several listeners responded to our recent coverage of a group called Indivisible, which has held town hall meetings with or without, and it's been without, elected leaders who normally host such events. One last Friday night where Coloradans talked to a cardboard cutout of Senator Cory Gardner got a lot of attention. We referred to Indivisible as anti-Trump and resisting the Trump administration. Indivisible describes itself as a practical guide to resisting the Trump agenda. But some listeners say the group is about more than that. We're not opposing everything Trump just because it comes from Trump, wrote Alex Olivas of Nederland. It just so happens that much of what Trump and congressional Republicans are doing now we strongly disagree with. What our group is really about is healthy democratic engagement. Amanda Miller of Denver wrote, I think it would be fair to call it a leftist movement, but the group is in no way centered around Trump. It's about advancing progressive causes and promoting equality, inclusion, and opportunity. Two immigrants whom the federal government wants to deport have moved into Denver churches as part of a new sanctuary movement, which we talked about recently. Both women have young kids born in the U.S. who don't live in the church with them, prompting questions from listener David Smith of Alamosa. 
Why can't immigrants who are set for deportation keep their families together by taking their American-born children with them? The churches are certainly free to provide them with support, and as American citizens, wouldn't the children be free to come and visit and stay with the church members here in the States? In fact, one very young boy does live with his mother in sanctuary at the Quaker Mountain View Friends Meeting, according to Jennifer Piper, a leader of the sanctuary movement in Metro Denver. The other kids visit regularly. The decision is really the families and the mothers and the kids in terms of what helps them have the most semblance of normal life. So in the case of Jeanette's kids and Ingrid's oldest son, their school is not nearby the church. So the kids live with their fathers closer to school. Piper says while it's not perfect, there'd be way more distance between the kids and their mothers if the women were deported. Two updates now on sports stories. A Denver team that was surprised to land a spot in the National Curling Championships recently saw their Olympic dreams end with a thud. The appropriately named Team Sobering finished ninth out of ten teams. Team Sobering was the only squad at the event that hadn't previously competed in the national championships. Meanwhile, Francesca Belibi, the first girl to dunk in a Colorado high school basketball game, has set another record. She dunked in the playoffs Friday. And once again, ESPN took notice, sharing a clip online. By the way, her team, Regis Jesuit, beat Fort Collins that night. Before the Oscars, I spoke with choreographer Mandy Moore. She came up with all the dance numbers in the film La La Land. Moore grew up in Breckenridge. We've since learned of two other Colorado connections to the film. If you saw the movie musical, then you heard Angela Parrish's voice. She sang in the big opening scene and graduated from the University of Northern Colorado. And Aurora native Dana Wilson appeared in the same number, dancing. That was a career highlight for me, for sure. One of the most epic in terms of scale and difficult in terms of technical execution. Being up there on the 105 freeway in like some pretty extreme Los Angeles summer heat, take after take after take, trying to get every move perfect, that can be difficult. Well, keep your comments and story ideas sashaying our way at Colorado Matters on Twitter. CPR News on Facebook, or there are any number of ways via the website, cprnews.org. You can click contact at the top of the page or comment beneath individual stories. It's been a season of extremes in Colorado. First came record-breaking high temperatures in November, then a lot of snow in December and January, and this past month turned on the heat again. Denver broke its record high at least three days in February. So where does that leave Colorado's biggest water supplier? CPR News host Mike Lamp checked in with Denver water spokesman Travis Thompson. February has seen some record high temperatures, and uh, I guess people in some areas are starting to uh, use a little more water, watering outside uh, as spring approaches. 
unfortunately, down here in the metro area, uh, we have a really conservation-minded community, and we really applaud our customers for recognizing that even though it's been dry, it's still too early to begin watering. We are in the wintertime, um, but obviously trees and shrubs may need to be watered by hand during this time of year, and that's something we encourage, and it's definitely nothing that would have any sort of major impact on our water supply as we head into the spring. Denver Water's uh, reservoirs are well above uh, average, well above normal? At the facilities where we collect our snowpack, we're at around 130% of average, and that's before March and April, which are typically our snowiest months, so we're in really good shape heading into the spring. It uh, has been some time now, but it seemed like for a good few years running, we could expect water restrictions in Denver. Is that not so typical anymore? Um, well, you know, you, we never know when that next dry period is going to come, and when it does come, how long it's going to last. So we always do have watering rules, and really what those are are kind of common-sense guidelines, making sure that your sprinkler heads aren't hitting the sidewalks or the driveway, not watering in the middle of the day when a lot of that water is going to evaporate. But those rules that you mentioned are different from the restrictions of no watering between certain hours or no watering more than uh, two times a week or something like that happen if we're in prolonged drought conditions or our storage supply reservoirs aren't in good enough shape. During those times, we may need additional restrictions on top of just the general guidelines that we have every single year. When your reservoirs are at a pretty good level as they are now, do you just keep on letting them get fuller and fuller or do you let water out and and let it go downstream or what? It's kind of a little too early to make decisions on runoff and how we will operate to determine if we need to start releasing a little bit more water earlier um, to ensure we have enough room to capture all of that spring runoff. I see. I understand that in fairly wet years, sometimes Colorado doesn't necessarily even keep all the water that it has a right to, that water is allowed to flow downstream into our neighbor states. Is that something that happens with you all? Yeah, so Denver Water has fairly senior water rights for all the water that we collect. But yeah, definitely in wet years or if we have multiple good years in a row, um, it is very common to see more of that water left into the rivers. And that's only an added benefit to our community. It makes our rivers and our recreation in the state that much better as well. Sounds like uh, the Denver area's water supply is looking pretty good heading into the spring. Yep. If we keep doing what we're doing down here, we'll be in good shape. That was Denver Water's Travis Thompson speaking with my colleague Mike Lamp. No more screen zombies. That's become a motto for two country singers. They saw their kids constantly staring at screens, and it inspired them to make a kid's album called Let's Go Outside. It's your four-card best friend running through the park, playing hide and seek, staying out after dark. It's a getting busy, tire swing, a country kind of thing. It's a You're hearing the Crash Daddies, spelled E-E-Z. The two bandmates were alarmed to learn that today's kids may live shorter lives than their parents because they're more sedentary. One half of the musical duo, Corey Brunson, is from outside Brighton, Colorado, and joins host Nathan Heffel. Hey, Corey, welcome to the program. What's going on, Nathan? It's going all right. How are you? I'm doing great, man. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, and I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, no worries. Well, yeah. you founded the Crash Daddies with Jason Wyatt. Yes. He's performed with the band The Lost Truckers. Trailers. Which, uh, trailers, sorry, which had some top 40 hits, yes. of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you both have children. We do. Uh, what kind of influence did your own kids have on making this album? 
Um, all of it. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm a dad first. Uh, I mean, husband and dad, you know, first. And uh, so that's, you know, at the at the core of my being. So watching my kids and caring for them and, you know, wanting what's best for them as, as Jason, you know, he's he's a great dad as well. That's that comes before any you know musical or career aspirations. So watching what was going on with them and kind of organically just looking for something to help me as a parent with this and not finding anything was the genesis for this project, for sure. Well, how did you try to distinguish this album from other kids' albums you've heard over the years? We um, That was one of the things, when I talked to Jason about it, I said, look, man, I got this idea for an album, but I hate listening to kids' records. <laughs> I, it just makes me want to run my car into a telephone pole. It's just... They're terrible. And you're always in that kind of quandary as a parent. Do I listen to, you know, the Metallica or the Lady Gaga record because I like that music? Or do I listen to the Barney and Wiggles record because I have my kids in the Odyssey, right? And when you have your kids, you always give it up as a parent. And so you say, okay, I'm going to listen to the Wiggles or the Barney or whatever's out there, kids bops. And nothing against any of that stuff, but I just, it drove me nuts as a parent. So we really were committed to doing something where the parents could enjoy the music at the very least, and and rock out with the kids. Now, this is a country music album first, it seems, and kind of a kids' album. It's got that vibe to it, that Nashville vibe, right? Yeah, we wanted it to make not just not just pigeonhole it into country. I mean, the songs. I mean, the song like "Let's Dance" is disco, um, and so there's uh, we wanted it to have a lot of rock to it. But yeah, I mean, Jason and I are both you know country artists, modern rock country artists, but country artists. So you're going to hear that, you know, thread through it for sure. But we wanted to be pretty diverse. Yeah. And you can hear this Nashville sound on the song Holy Smoke. Let's listen. Quite a clip to it, doesn't it? Oh man, I tell you, some of the best <laughs> players in Nashville are on this record for sure. Jason's a, Jason's a producer out there now, and so he knows all the best uh, guys for sure. And when we do the live show, when we do this song, yeah. we have a snowball fight with our audience. How's that work? We bring these uh, these little white puff balls that they actually throw really well, um, but they're about the same consistency as a snowball, and they're softer, of course. And so you can just chuck them at the audience, and we bring two buckets of those and we just start having a big because it's all about getting physical and interactive yeah. right well and getting so, outside and getting outside and having some fun and stuff so um the kids absolutely go bonkers when we start and they don't they have no idea it's coming and all of a sudden i mean how how many times are you nine and you go to a concert and the lead singer starts throwing snowballs at you and you get permission to throw the snowballs back and try to tag him in the head. The, the kids go absolutely nuts for that. They love it. So they're falling in love with this this album, it seems. Yeah, as as we're trying to get it out into the public, you know, uh, viewing and uh, people knowing that it's uh, available. Now, what about the band members? Were they in, into being like, you're like, hey, I want to make a kids, a kids album. Were they like, okay? Or yeah. Were they... Well, we well, like I said, we just kind of produced this in Nashville with um, the guys that Jason knows out there in the studios because we wanted to produce it like we would any other record. And so um, 
yeah, when you first tell people, hey, hey, Jason, I want to make a kid's record, he's like, what? They think Barney and Wiggles and that kind of stuff. So it takes a little bit. It's cool because it's unique, but because it's unique, it, it does take some explanation to people. You listen to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Corey Brunson. He's a country singer from outside Brighton, Colorado, and one half of the band Crash Daddies with a Z. Yeah. They've just released a new album called Let's Go Outside. So your ultimate focus group for, for Crash Daddies and this album is your own kids. Right. Uh, how do they feel about it? They love it. And what's fun, I mean, my kids are around music and stuff all the time. Jason and I talk. It's hilarious. He'll do stuff with like the Tennessee Titans. And then I've done stuff with the Rockies out here. And we'll get done performing in you know, a stadium of people. And, you know, and I come back up and I go, hey, buddy, you know, did you see daddy on the Jumbotron? He goes, yeah. Can we go to the play gym now and get some Dippin' Dots? <laughs> so it's, it's pretty common for them. What's been cool for us is to see um, like uh, there's a lady named Joy who's kind of coming on as our manager now. She's done a lot of stuff in entertainment. Mm. And we just kind of – I've known her for a long while, but she just kind of happened to run across this record with us. She gave it to her kids and just pushed play, and it did what we originally – two years ago when we came up with it, it, it's doing what we wanted it to do in basically retraining these kids and re-inspiring them, not just preaching at them and telling them what to do, but inspiring them to want to get away from glowing screens and do something fun and build forts in the in the house with, you know, the sheets and the chairs and all this stuff. And she was really blown away by how effective the music was and how powerful it was in changing her kids' habits. So she's kind of coming on board now and helping us promote this whole thing. I mean, hasn't that been done before, though, maybe in another album? Or is it, do you think this is kind of the first time that you're... You're making an album that kids are going to race out and, and, and get away from their iPhones and their TVs and things. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's certainly the only thing I've been a part of or ran across where the specific goal is to get kids to get outside, play in the snow, play with their dog, get some fresh air and have some balance with technology. And we're not an anti-technology um, project. Mm-hmm. It's just a balance. It's not no more screens. It's no more screen zombies is kind of the tagline. You're now working on another album uh, for grown-ups uh, with the appropriately named Corey Brunson Band. Yeah. Uh, I want to hear how you got into country music uh, or music in general, you know, because you had another career and it wasn't music. It was insurance. Yeah, I was I was a pretty sweet insurance salesman. So if you ever <laughs> want to talk about universal or variable life, I'm, I'm your guy. In a country music song, of course. Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll put that in a song one day. I got into country music by accident. Um, I, I wanted to put out a record and I put out a rock record. And it didn't do very well, and I was just learning the business, and I got inspired about our military and put out a song called We Know You're Out There. And the song kind of took off. Um, A lady from, at the time, uh, Jazz FM, took it over to KYGO and put it on Joel Burke's desk, the program director at the time, and said, you need to play this song. It's a country music station here in Denver. And they are a big country music station here, and all of a sudden, I'm getting airplay on KYGO, and I kind of realized, I go, you know what, maybe I'm a country artist because I love God and my family and the United States. I'm very patriotic and that kind of stuff. And so it was kind of a discovery for me of, you know, maybe this is the kind of artist I am. So then I just kept following that and kind of became the country music artist I am now. Well, let's hear a bit of that song called uh, We Know You're Out There about military veterans. As I stand in awe of you I'm amazed at what you do The pride you show And all the choices that you make For me and my family's sake I need you to know We know you're out there We thank God for you Blood 
We Know You're Out There. Yeah. It's a song that, that you wrote. What kind of sacrifices did it take to make this transition from insurance to, to music into something that it seems you definitely love? Uh, it took sacrifice on the part of my wife. Um, without her, I would not have a career. Hmm. So when I went into music, she worked full time. I shut down my insurance agency and she provided for us a family of two at the time. And then as I've, you know, sort of gained momentum and been able to provide for the family more and more, finally we were able to bring her home to give her her dream to be a full-time mom. And so, uh, yeah, I'd be absolutely nowhere without my missus. Now you live with your wife and kids. Uh, in Keensburg. Keensburg. Yeah, outside of Brighton in Keensburg, baby. <laughs> How many songs have you written about uh, about your wife? Um you know, not very many. It's kind of odd. I, I keep wanting to do that. Yeah. Um, there's one I'm working on right now. Uh, the, the working title is um, Country Music's Been Irritating Me Lately with this word girl. Everything's girl. Hey, girl, you're my girl, girl. What's up, girl? And that's not my life. You know, I'm, I'm married to a real woman. And so I have this working title called That Ain't My Girl, That's My Woman. Yeah. And the idea is, you know, hey, man, is that your girl? No, nah, that ain't my girl. That's my woman there. And let me tell you what a real woman is. So I'm working on that song. That's a little tidbit of uh, some of my scratch paper. Right, writing those things down. I, I mean, is, is that something you're finding kind of an issue with, it seems, that, that maybe country music's on one way and you want to maybe go another way? Yeah, or... you know, I mean, it's easy to criticize, right, from the cheap seats. But um, I, personally, just as a fan, I, I get a little bit tired of all these songs being kind of myopic about the same thing and just kind of kissing up, oh, please, girl, let me, you know, be your everything. And I certainly don't have anything against that type of song. But, yeah, I'd like us to, as artists, um, you know, look at more of a the human experience as a totality of it. But, you know, that's just my artistic nature speaking, not my business mind. Your newest single yes. is called Freak. I uh -huh. want to take a listen to that real quick. I don't judge a man by his color, but I can sure agree character counts. But I'm finding out I'm a freak. What's the message of this song, Freak? Yeah, it's, uh, it started out as an exercise in just songwriting and how many buzzwords I could shove into a song. Um, but it's kind of taken on a life of its own. I didn't think anybody would like it. And the band, my band members that I play with, they, they told me, yeah, man, keep going with that. And then fans were liking it live. And, but the main message is um, feeling odd for having what you feel like is kind of middle of the road, top of the bell curve, normal thoughts and feelings. So the challenge with it was to bring everybody together with that instead of, okay, I'm an extreme this way or I'm extreme this way in my thinking. I just kind of have regular thoughts and regular feelings and viewpoints of the world and the the extreme media can make you feel odd for that. So it's just kind of a, a, a turnaround tongue-in-cheek kind of thing like, excuse me for having normal feelings. I'm a freak, I guess. Corey, thanks so much for being here. Hey, man, thanks for having us. I'm a freak. Country music artist Corey Brunson lives in Keensburg, northeast of Denver. We talked about several of his projects, including a kid's album with his band Crash Daddies. He spoke to Nathan Heffel. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a whole lot more like me right outside your front.